Welcome to DLA Piper's Tech Law Podcast Series with me, Chloe Forster, a technology lawyer at global law firm DLA Piper. Welcome to today's podcast in which I and an eminent industry executive will be exploring how the future is already here, given the profound impact that rapid advancements in technology are having across all industries, and in particular, the financial services sector and the public sector, whether that's in the context of the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, robotic process automation, or blockchain. This forms part of our preparation for our widely acclaimed DLA Piper European Technology Summit 2019, scheduled for Tuesday the 15th of October at ETC venues, 155 Bishopsgate, London. Do look out for further details on this major biennial conference via DLA Piper's social media channels. It's attended by over 350 senior legal and commercial executives as the event day's programme will include panel discussions on both digital transformation and fintech. Whilst I am a lawyer in our technology transactions and strategic sourcing group, advising on complex and strategic technology and sourcing transactions, here I extend a special welcome to Gary Barnett, Chief Analyst, Technology Thematic Research at Global Data PLC, a leading market intelligence company who've been helping over 4,000 organisations worldwide make better and more timely decisions. Hi Gary, for the benefit of our listeners, it'd be great if you could give us a brief introduction of you and your professional background. Sure, and, and firstly, thanks very much for having me. Um, so my, my background began as a software engineer working in, working in Paris. So I, I, I got a grounding in fairly deep, nerdy technology. I was, I was working, um, writing network protocol stacks and all sorts of fun stuff. And then I went to work for a large automotive company, running development teams, helping them do the early, the first phase of, of real digital transformation, which was the transformation from mainframe computing to client-server computing. But in the late 1990s, I became a technology analyst mm-hmm. looking at that broad range of technologies that organizations need to bring to bear in order to deliver the transformation that the market demands that um, that they come up with. And right now I'm in this wonderful position of being the chief analyst for a team of very, very smart people looking at 70 topics and trying to bring those together into a cohesive story to tell our clients. Thank you, that's brilliant. Global Data has recently launched thematic research that has examined the role of the following four specific disruptive technologies in delivering real and sustainable business change. Artificial intelligence, blockchain, the Internet of Things and process automation. So Gary, what impact are these technologies having across vertical sectors and particularly in the financial services industry? Well, those are, those are four core technologies. To give you a tiny bit of background, our thematic research program looks at 70 different technologies, ranging from silicon chips and semiconductors, 3D printing, right through to the latest and greatest technologies like blockchain or cryptocurrencies. And for every different sector that we look at, we'll identify a small set of themes that are particularly relevant to that sector. And if you look at financial services, the need to make better use of data is driving the adoption of AI and machine learning. Um, blockchain is the, the, the super-hyped topic du jour, um, and I can wax lyrical about how much nonsense is spoken about that technology at any time that you ask me. But things like process automation, again, are not necessarily the sexiest theme, thematic topics, but the need to fundamentally change the way our core business operations function is absolutely acute if we're going to face up to the the level of disruption that we can see in the future, and particularly in financial services, where you have, at one end of the spectrum, financial institutions who can count their age in centuries Mm -hmm. to 
fintech startups who count their age in months. And the, and the disruption that those young startups are bringing, their focus on a very small set of customers, to typically millennials, the fact that they have no legacy at all, and legacy is either something that holds you back or it's a fat inheritance, they're taking the form of you. So the, the, those core technologies become really crucial things that anyone in financial services needs to, one, understand, be able to benchmark their capabilities in the context of that technology against their peers, and see, more crucially, and this is, this is where we spend a lot of time advising customers, is if they've established they're a little bit behind the curve, mm-hmm. figure out what they need to do in order to acquire the skills, do the organisational change, and effectively embrace these new technologies. Because I think as our conversation evolves and we start talking about the practicalities of digital transformation, we're going to discover that despite the fact that I'm a sort of a fairly avowed geek, technology is a tiny fraction of the challenge we face when we're actually trying to transform our organisations. Yeah, I think it's really interesting the point that you make there about process automation because thinking about what we're seeing in the market at the moment, particularly with our clients in the financial services sector, that really is the area where most of our clients are generating the biggest efficiencies and savings by deploying those technologies. It feels to me, and I'd be interested in your thoughts, that AI, blockchain, the Internet of Things are still to come, but the process automation is really what we're seeing and what we have been seeing in the last 18 months or so in the immediate short term. Absolutely. And I think there are two components to change. There's that innovative new change the, the things you might adopt that will that will help you either enter new markets or mm. uh, uh, acquire new customers. And, and, and that's great and it's important and, it, and certainly every organisation should be focused on that. But in the meantime, day to day, in fact, the things that are holding us back are the mundane and obvious things. Why does it take so long to do KYC processes? Why does it take so long to onboard a new customer? And there's an adjacent component here, partic- which is particularly relevant in regulated industries. As we evolve our processes, who's keeping an eye on them? Who's auditing them? Who's, who understands a particular process genuinely from end to end? And I'll give you a quick example. It's, it's from mining, but there's a big uh, mining company in uh, the 1990s who had uh, a massive process audit, and they came out as sort of five stars. Every one of their processes was being executed absolutely properly. But then someone sort of saw something slightly odd, and it turned out there was one process where the guys in the IT department had to run this massive query against their database, and it printed thousands of pages of paper which were put onto a wooden pallet and taken to room 46B. But they did that every day, and they did it perfectly, and they, you know, they were six sigma in terms of their quality. And there was an adjacent process from facilities management, which was to go to room 44B, find the uh, crate containing all of this paper, and to take it to the waste disposal centre <laughs> and shred it. So the, both of these processes were running perfectly but they were absolutely pointless so that that you know this idea that we ought to have some sort of end-to-end view and you know um, if you look at any financial institution that's of any significant size today they will be a result of a many years of history in most cases many acquisitions they will operate in many different regulatory jurisdictions and many of their processes will be let's be honest a fairly nightmarish blend of human interaction human decision making then it might be automated for a period you know there are still organizations we're aware of that that you know if a change is made a piece of paper physical piece of paper has to go around an office where people initial different steps you know but so we're still kind of in the dark ages in some of our processes and in order to face up to the the challenge posed by these fintech startups those established players really need to get to grips with those processes and the 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 problem with that is that 
within your individual department, within your individual team, it's relatively easy to adopt and adapt and improve processes. But back to the the example of the mining company and the and the crazy reporting um, mm-hmm. process they had, if you're just looking at your own silo, mm-hmm. you're missing the real opportunity to, to make processes more efficient. And of course, as again, as we all know, getting organisations to talk across departments and across divisions is never an easy thing, and it's never something that people leap out of bed excited about doing because we you know we know it's 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 a struggle and one of the analogies I use all the time in the context of digital transformation is based on the fact that my I'm the only son of an Irish mother and there are two key things that that means one if I ever murdered someone she'd give me an alibi and pass a polygraph test (laughs) Irish mums are like that Uh, but two I was never allowed my dessert until I ate my greens and a lot of the time I spend with clients is about helping them get around to eating their greens. So, in fact, every presentation I give has a picture of a big sprig of broccoli on it. And, it's, and, and my colleagues call it Gary's Broccoli Slide. Because a lot of this, again, it's not about grabbing the latest and greatest robotic process automation tool. Yeah. It's about getting the right people into the room and agreeing a common purpose, a common desire to improve this process. And you know, that, that, that is all human. That's all about yeah. organization. It's all about leadership and strategy. And absent those, all of the technology in the world is not going to help you. So underlying AI, blockchain, and IoT, process automation, and, and, and the panoply of other technologies we look at, whether it's the adoption of cloud, which is a mm-hmm. big issue with, uh, with many of our clients. If we, if we take cloud for a moment, adopting cloud means understanding the different relationships you're going to have with suppliers, mm-hmm. having a complicated discussion about liability, having a complex discussion about data privacy and the regulations that surround that. How do you reorganize your internal IT folk so that they're able to support applications that they used to run locally but are now running on the cloud? And under, making sure that the expectations of the wider community within your organization are, are appropriately set for, yeah. for that transition. So again, it almost doesn't matter which cloud provider you choose because you're going to screw it up anyway unless you do some of the basic underlying things. And looking at the the, the specific topics that that we've highlighted, all of these things are crucial. And that process automation component, I agree with you, it's it's not the most exciting thing, but that's that will be the thing that takes friction out of end to end processes, it will improve the quality of those processes, improve the quality of the decision making, which speaks to commercial risk one end of the spectrum and also legal liability at the other end of the spectrum so you know improving these things is not a bad thing to do the issue that we always have is it's the getting fit to do it so it's not necessarily super exciting and and part of my job I think is to get people excited about doing those apparently mundane things because those are those are the things that are going to help one drive the immediate value but two they also get you fit for the future change that you need to embrace if you've got garbage processes, all the robotic process automation in the world is not, not going to fix those. You, you actually need to grapple with them. Thank you, Gary. That's really interesting. And to pick up on a couple of points that you mentioned, for me, in the projects that I've seen embraced most successfully in the financial services sector, there are two key components. The first one, I think, is really looking at customer journey and basing it on what the customer wants at the heart of it, but actually also thinking about what that means in terms of change management within the organization, changing how the organization is thinking about some of the challenges and problems that they're facing. So how would you advise your clients as they embark upon a a major digital transformation program? You absolutely hit the nail on the head when you talk about the customer, which is something that causes a certain amount of amusement for me and my team periodically, because let's face it, in your day-to-day life, you have to engage with different organizations, many of which 
I think are probably fairly described as customer-hating organisations. You know, any, anyone who owns a mobile phone and has had to interact with whichever provider, I'm not, I'm not going to name a provider because they're all the same, they essentially hate us as customers. And the first piece of advice I, I, I have for organisations is you need to make a conscious decision not to despise your customers. Let me give you the analogue. I you know, referred to my mum earlier. If I went to John Lewis and had a bad experience and came to my mother and complained about it, her immediate reaction would be to ask me what I'd done wrong. <laughs> because her belief in the quality of service that you'll get from John Lewis is so absolutely founded in, in long-term experience that her presumption would be that I had been an idiot and that that wonderful John Lewis person had plainly been extremely patient with me. And for John Lewis to have built that level of certainty of service is not an accident. A, without wishing to be too political, John Lewis is a partnership. Mm -hmm. Every person who works for John Lewis has a stake in the business. But customer service is inculcated into every single thing that organisation does. So the people who work behind the scenes in the warehouses get customer service training. They're part of the promise that John Lewis makes to its customers. The people who work on the floor get constant support and they're rewarded for helping and supporting customers. Mm -hmm. So that's an organisation that from the very get-go has said, you know, we quite like our customers. We would like our customers to have the best possible experience. And, you know, and I'm, I'm only half-joking when I say this. The first thing I say to organisations is make a conscious decision that you really want to provide your customers with the best possible service. And once you've made that decision, do you know, loads of other things get really easy. Because if I sit here and say, well, wouldn't it be good if we just looked at this process from the perspective of the customer? Frankly, I don't regard that as a particularly insightful piece of advice. Mm. That's a pretty obvious piece of advice, provided you care about the customer. So caring about the customer is job yep. number one. But as you say, just going through the process. And, and it's interesting to see the different attempts that organisations make. So we saw it in uh, retail banking in the 1990s, where their belief was that self-service could replace customer service. So everything was about trying to drive people to off I mean, you know, non-bricks-and-mortar channels, whether it's to a call centre, which they all outsourced to. And ironically, they kept their core aged banking systems in the UK, and they outsourced the point of interaction with customers overseas. What we've discovered now in the last sort of five or so, or so years is a complete reversal of that. So now banks are, have finally realised, wait a sec, actually... Customers don't choose us because we, we chose a particular version of COBOL or a particular type of mainframe to store current account entries in our database. They will choose us because of the experience that they have when they engage with us. Now, this is slightly complicated by the fact that millennials don't want to talk to anyone. They want it on their mobile phone. So, you know, one of the interesting things, I think, in the con context of talking about customer journey is that any organization will have many, many customers, ranging from people who may not be digitally native and in the public sector, and I do a lot of work in the public sector, this is, this is not an optional thing, this is mandated. If, if you're offering a public service, you have to be able to deal with people who may not have an internet connection, who may not have a smartphone yeah. at one end of the spectrum, to people at the other end of the spectrum who, frankly, would rather crawl over broken glass than have a face-to-face -face conversation with someone, you know, in fact, you know, give it to them on their mobile. So this idea, for example, that customer experience should be mobile or customer experience should be this or that, it is about an omni-channel customer experience. Mm -hmm. Because the other thing I talk about quite a lot is we've used this term customer relationship management for, for, you know, for decades and decades and decades. And it's kind of founded on the idea that our customers are like sheep and that we can move them from 
this customer is a prospect, this customer is a lead, this customer, and we, we, we take them through this orderly set of processes until bang, we shoot them and we eat them at the end of the, you know, um, at the end of the process, like, just like little sheep sort of on their way to the way to being shrink-wrapped and, and, and sold at a supermarket. Customers aren't like that anymore. Customers aren't cheap anymore. They're tigers. Customers control the relationship. So the, the era of customer relationship management, I think, is over, and we're now in the era of customer-managed relationships. I can't, if I'm providing a financial service, rely on a customer to dutifully come to my website and peruse it. In fact, a lot of insurance companies are kind of slightly bewildered by the fact that no one goes to their website because no one chooses insurance by dutifully going to all the different insurers' websites. We go to comparethemeercat.com or one of the other comparison sites. So customers aren't going to follow the rules that we've set for them anymore. They're going to find their own ways to come to us. Mm. And those, those old approaches and those old understandings of what customer journey means are completely outdated today so just walking in the shoes of all of the different customers to whom you want to sell or who you want to serve whether that's mrs miggins who's you know 92 lived in the same town for 60 years or whether it's amy working in here who might move house you know every six or so months might uh, change mobile phone um, you know might have an incredibly active uh, and different lifestyle and who wouldn't dream of walking into a bank branch and sitting down and expecting to have a face-to-face conversation so it's that full gamut of different experiences and one thing I would say is of course this is hard there is no magic bullet and and you know I'm, I'm again I you know I'll be busy promoting a whole bunch of technologies that can certainly help but the reason we so many organizations fail is is it's not that they're stupid it's that this is actually really difficult to do you know it requires support from the very, very top. I think the person who is, should be most responsible for digital transformation or most responsible for the customer journey is the chief exec. That is actually their job. A chief executive officer's job is to, is to execute the policy and, and, and strategy defined by the board. Their job is to uh, assure the level of change and the level of service. My view is that they're the people who should be highlighting what the destination is. I mean, it's my, my, my one golden rule of management has always been anyone who works for me will always have the right to know what I expect. Mm-hmm. And I've worked in many, many organisations where I've not the vaguest notion what my organisation actually really expected from me. And I think the, one, you know, one of the first rules of management should be to say, the enemy is there. That's where you point your bullets. And my next job is to make sure people have the bullets they need. The ability to say to, across an organisation... We have decided to truly care about our customers and understand their experiences. And we will get it wrong. And we'll try new technology. And where technology improves the customer experience, we'll keep it. And and, and where it doesn't, we'll throw it away. And the willingness to constantly try new things. And, And underlying that is, to my very first point, caring about the customer experience, kind of job number one. Yeah, and I think having that that sense of purpose and sense of clarity of vision across an organisation and coming from the top is also really important because it helps bring your employees, your stakeholders on the journey with you. Change through digital transformation can be an unsettling time in organisations and having that conviction and that sense of direction can really help embed the processes and, and make sure that actually the great ideas and the great opportunities that technology presents really can be delivered on. No, absolutely. And that clarity of purpose is actually how you persuade people to get on board. So, I mean, I'm doing a lot of work with, with local councils in the UK who, who are all 
under intense pressure to do digital transformation. In fact, of all the potential markets or sectors where digital transformation is, is a fundamental necessity, the UK public sector is probably number one. If you take a London borough, most of them have half the money today to spend on the provision of services that they had in 2007. So if you look at the history of civilization, civilizations don't blossom in verdant landscapes where in order to eat all you need to do is pluck fruit from a tree. Civilizations blossom when you're terrified about where the water's going to come from, where you have to learn how to do organized agriculture. So if you take the UK public sector where, where, where funding has been literally halved in some cases, digital transformation isn't a nice to have. It's an absolute imperative because unless they make those profound changes, they're not going to be able to deliver the services they want to deliver. So it starts with getting everyone into a room and saying, listen, we have to do this change. So let's agree what Nirvana looks like. Where, you know, where are we all heading? And you'll have different people within different parts of the organisation who will be more or less excited about the idea of change. And, and you know, digital transformation is fundamentally, you know, people's cheese is going to be moved. There are going to be people within an organisation who are very, very resistant. You know, it's, it's sometimes easy to belittle them, but these are natural human responses to change. So part of this is, let's agree what the destination is. Mm. Because now we can say, well, I know that you love having your in-house server farm and hugging your servers, and I know that's, you know that's important to you now, but what is it about that that makes it harder for us to deliver this change that we all need to deliver? Can, can, we, can we agree that there are some things we need to change? And, and I mean, I've, I've, I've done this face-to-face with technology folk in, in councils, and, and there's this very interesting moment when they kind of, you offer them a series of statements to which it's very hard to disagree. Do you think our IT infrastructure should cost more or less? Which do you think would be better? Or do you think we should be providing fewer services to our customers? Or should we be providing more and better services to customers? Yes, obviously we need to do better IT. Obviously we need to be more adaptive in the face of change. And, th- and then there's a point where some of them realise what you're doing. And they're kind of, well, you're hornswoggling me, aren't you? Because I've just said yes to a whole bunch of things which actually, the way we do things today, are impossible to achieve. So that th- that next step is, right, we've all agreed that we need to do this, this and this. What is it about what we're doing today that makes it harder to do those things? And suddenly people start saying, well, yeah, I suppose having all our servers located in a single room where there's no more capacity and so on probably isn't helping us manage our costs or managing our risk or or deliver change. And it's about showing people the light. And again, people aren't stupid. Provided they can buy into that common set of values, most people will see what contribution they could make coming there but of course there are some times when you're doing doing digital transformation I th- and, and, and I think this is important and and it's one of those difficult aspects of digital transformation when Lou Gerstner took over IBM IBM was going through a massive crisis and he was brought in and it was a real mess and one of the first things he said to the top leadership was you're all talented people I'm not concerned about how talented you are and, and some of you will need some help to get some additional skills. And I'm willing to, to work with you to do that. But if any of you don't agree with the direction we're going, then I'm afraid we're going to have to part company. It doesn't matter how talented you are. If you're not bought into our vision, it's not going to help you. It's not going to help us for you to stay within this organisation. And so that, you know, yes, we're driving change. Some people will buy into it and embrace it. And those are the people we you know, absolutely need to support and help. Some people may not. Mm-hmm. And managing their careers and managing ma- managing their role within the organization is you know is a component of, of driving digital transformation so this touches on hr this touches on training ultimately recruitment the other partners 
uh, that you engage with, quite often my ability to provide service isn't a function of my processes, it's a function of the processes of the supplier or the partner that I'm engaged with. So we then have to start having conversations with them. And are those informal com conversations or do we contract for better customer service with, with those people? And that's, that, that's another component. So again, lots of stuff to think about. And it starts at the top. That's really interesting. And taking it back then to where we started off, we've obviously talked quite a lot about uh, process automation and the opportunities that that derives. Thinking forward to the next sort of three, five years, how do you see some of the other technologies that come out in your thematic research really contributing to drive that change agenda? Let me talk briefly about blockchain. I, I don't intend to mince my words. But blockchain is probably one of the biggest cons that has been played on the technology industry ever. It's a technology very specifically designed to do one thing, which is to assure the, the, the safe transfer of digital tokens between two parties. Blockchain was invented to support the Bitcoin cryptocurrency. But it has been embraced as some sort of magical totem by many other organizations, with many firms promising insane benefits as a result of using blockchain. And fundamentally, some of those organizations are saying that because they don't quite understand what blockchain is. Some of the organizations are saying it because they don't quite understand the business that they claim is going to be changed by it. And, and some are saying it because they just want to get more customers. And it wouldn't be for me, and certainly I'm, you know, I'm sitting in a lawyer's office, I'm not going to name any, um, any names, but there are charlatans out there. If you look, for example, at a claim that says blockchain will take 80% of the costs out of financial settlement, which is a claim that's made fairly widely by a number of firms, th that claim is nonsense. If you look at what puts the cost into those financial settlement systems, it's those aged processes we were talking about earlier. It's ridiculously long sets of steps. And blockchain does not magically erase those. Um, blockchain will not magically persuade everyone to agree. Blockchain will not magically audit all of those things. We have to do those. We have to drive those change. So if you, you know, the when you say the claim that 80% of costs can be taken out of financial services and out of um, uh, financial settlement by blockchain, actually what you're really saying is maybe a tiny fraction of that will be down to blockchain. 79.9% of that cost saving is going to be down to people doing digital transformation, people sitting down with each other, agreeing, compromising, refining and improving processes. Mm. Blockchain isn't magic. And I think quite often blockchain is used as a homeopathic remedy. Mm -hmm. The consultant, you know, who wears a suit that's cost more than your house did, rocks up and says, you know, I have this magic soup stone. And, and all you need to do is provide a little bit of boiling water and it'll make the best soup in the world, honestly. And, you know, you're intrigued, so you boil the water and he pops the stone and he, gets, he sniffs it. Goes, Just a tiny bit of seasoning and... Uh, do you have any stock and maybe a little few vegetables? <laughs> By the end of it, you've you've done the digital transformation, yeah. and the obviously the consultant then can take the stone out and take it to the next victim and uh, sell another business change program. But in fact, the benefit that this blockchain technology has brought to that process is next to nothing. It's almost an inert catalyst for change, but it is at least provoking people to have some of these conversations. So you know, part of me doesn't want to kind of dispel the myth because. If this magical totem is causing people to have grown-up conversations about what it needs to be needs to change, but it it's a classic, you know, it is a classic get-fit snake oil medicine. It only works if you eat well and exercise a lot. And in fact, I suspect that it is the eating well and exercising a lot that will get you the the benefits. And and in fact, the uh, the blockchain pill is nothing but you know a little tablet made out of sugar. 
I could wax lyrical about some of the kind of deep, nerdy technology reasons why blockchain sucks, but it's a slow and expensive way to store data by comparison to, to, to other technologies. So blockchain's an interesting one, and blockchain's one where we take a very strongly sceptical and somewhat counter the general market view, but it's based on... A, good faith, we have no skin in this game, and, and B, an understanding of actually what it takes to, to, you know, if you really want to take 80% of the costs out of a business process, a single technology ain't going to do it. I can give you a magic bullet. If you point it at your foot instead of the vampire, you're just going to shoot yourself in the foot, uh, and the vampire's you know, going to be still alive. If we look at um, other ones, AI is very interesting for two reasons. AI is similarly hyped in the context of blockchain. So there was a fascinating report recently which looked at a whole bunch of AI startups and discovered that four out of ten of them had no AI. So just just AI washing your, your generic you know, proposition is a great way to sort of you know, attract VC investment. But AI undoubtedly has the ability to help us do really transformational things. So AI is fundamentally about helping us make far better decisions based on the data that we have. But again, coming back to the broccoli, if you have crap data, your AI is going to come out with garbage. And the work that you have to do to understand what your organization knows, and this is the thing that drives me absolutely bonkers in the context of particularly regulated industries, but I, I imagine law firms are the same. It's I'm not concerned about the data that is sitting nicely in the ERP system or in the CRM system. I'm worried about the data that's sloshing around in Excel spreadsheets in people's laptops and inbox mm. folders. I call that feral data. Feral data that mooches around and often breeds with other bits of feral data producing her horrific hybrids. Um, because, again, if we're honest and we look at the main strategic decisions that our organizations make and say, how many of those are made off the back of data that is pristine and has come out of a, a, a highly audited and well-managed platform? Or how much of that those key strategic decisions are made off the back of weird feral spreadsheets that have sloshed up to the surface you know and, and yeah. you know i'm not going to ask people to raise their hands it's a podcast we wouldn't be able to see them anyway but but a significant proportion of us would kind of confess that a lot of the key decisions we may make aren't made off the back of rational well-supported data they're they're made off the back of this feral data mm -hmm. so the donald rumsfeld's famous quote which was about you know there are known knowns there are known unknowns and there are, um, there are unknown unknowns. He forgot the fourth logical one, which is the unknown knowns. Organizations don't know what they know. And if you're going to do AI, and, and I'll get, I will get to AI, but if you're, going to, if you're going to do AI, you need to get the data. You need to understand it. You need to get it ready to be processed. And then you could do this amazing stuff with artificial intelligence. And the, the, the power of this technology, it is truly impossible to overestimate it. One big research program uh, was looking at the photographs taken of human retinas and examining them. And it was fed many hundreds of thousands of, 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 of these retina scans. And some of these images came with some additional data, uh, data you know, the, the gender of the person, their age. But some, a, a lot of these were simply, you know, anonymous images. And one of the things the researchers found out was that the AI system could tell whether it was a male retina or a female retina. None of the ophthalmologists had ever been able to figure that out. You know, it, it, and, and indeed, they weren't entirely sure how the machine learning was coming to this conclusion. But this machine learning system was saying, yeah, I think that's mistaked. You're saying that's a male, but that's definitely a female retina. Insights like that are astonishing to me because they're insights that we simply wouldn't 
have come to, or at least it would have taken us many, many years and, and probably many accidents to come to. So the ability to correlate data, to draw inferences from it, to identify those very, very subtle correlations between different data sets is what artificial intelligence is extremely good at. What it's really bad at these days is being a human being. The idea that artificial intelligence can genuinely replace the human brain is a long, long way off. And there are some philosophical reasons for this, but there are actually some, some proper sort of scientific reasons. So the typical human brain consumes about two litres of space. It consumes 20 watts of power, and yet it is as powerful a computer as a computer that would require a football pitch's worth of data centre and many thousands of watts of power. There is something amazing about this computer that we are carrying around. It's, you know, two kilograms of stuff that can outperform supercomputers. And we are a long way from being able to genuinely replicate the behavior of the human brain. brain. So, you know, when people talk about cognitive computing or artificial intelligence, you know, so we're, we are somewhere away from... And by somewhere away, it could be 50 years, it could be 100 years. But in the meantime, the application of technologies like machine learning or deep learning or artificial intelligence to helping us better understand the correlations between data, that's, that's available to us today. And there's, there's another really interesting component to this as well. And this should be terrifying to large financial institutions, potentially even large law firms, but certainly large pharmaceutical companies. Today, I can start up a company with £100,000 in capital, and I can get access to artificial learning capability from Google or from IBM that you don't have. I can have more artificial intelligence capability at my disposal than an organization a million times larger than mine. You know, I can get started on, um, um, on the Google platform or, or on our IBM's platform for $60 a month. Ten years ago, that was inconceivable. If you're looking into analysis of past legal cases, which, which actually with IBM's natural language processing is something we're not, we're not far away from being able to do. A small company could say, right, all I need is access to a database of case um, summaries and judgments. I can rent this AI capability for a certain amount of time and I can start drawing inferences from it. Again, is that going to beat the experienced partner um, with a decade plus of, of knowledge in a particular um, um, domain today? No. But the question is, if you're an experienced partner in a large law firm, are you reading every case? Are you able to read every legal journal? Are you able to read every judgment on every case globally in your domain? Probably not. But an artificial intelligence platform can. It can yeah. chew that stuff up and, and spit it out. But the experienced partner, the experienced data scientist in a pharmaceutical firm, you know, your jobs are safe for now, for sure. But, but certainly, as tools to help you, these things are, are real and available today. And I think the, the, the point that you make is a really valid one because I think the real sweet spot has to be those established organisations that have all that historic data and historic knowledge but are also able to work with their partners to actually be able to embrace these technologies too and to understand the risks associated with them but to find ways to mitigate that. Thanks to Gary Barnett, Chief Analyst, Technology and Thematic Research at Global Data PSC, for sharing his insights on the profound impact that rapid advancements in technology are having across all industries, and in particular, the financial services and public sector. Do look out for further podcasts from the global business law firm DLA Piper, 
as we explore the influence of regulation and emerging technologies in business and wider society. Several podcasts, including ones focusing on fintech, food technology, robotics and automation, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, crowdfunding, retail tech, human rights and cloud computing are already available for you to listen to on our website or maybe accessed via the Apple Podcast app or SoundCloud as well as other apps and services for Android and other phones. Do also note that we will, on Tuesday the 15th of October at ETC Venues, 155 Bishopsgate, London, be hosting our widely acclaimed DLA Piper European Technology Summit 2019 a major biennial conference attended by over 350 senior legal and commercial executives. We're looking forward to eminent industry executives joining us for various panel discussions throughout this full-day event, at which I will be moderating a panel under the banner of Revitalising Retail, How Tech is Shaping the Future of Retail, and Global Data's Gary Barnett is set to feature on a panel headlined Beyond Digital Transformation, which will be moderated by my colleague Paul Allen. Do follow DLA Piper on our social media channels and look out for further details due to be published soon, allowing you to register to join us for that exciting full day, exploring a variety of aspects on digital transformation and emerging technologies across multiple industries with eminent industry leaders. Thank you from me, Chloe Forster, technology lawyer at global law firm DLA Piper.